Well, hopefully you're still in Matthew 18, if you'll turn there, if you did close your Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 21 till the end of the chapter, and I'm including 21 and 22 because it's important and it provides for us the occasion of this parable. And um, it's quite striking in many ways. Uh, As you know, most of you know, we've been going through a series on the kingdom of heaven We've been discussing various nuances of that, acknowledging that in a sense, the kingdom of heaven is the already and the not yet. There's a sense in which when Christ came, he said the kingdom of God is among you, him uh, physically and bodily being there. But there's a sense in which the kingdom kingdom of heaven is fully fulfilled in the future. And so we commonly, and theologians commonly call that the already and the not yet. We've looked at six parables so far. Um, I believe all have been through Matthew 13. But what an amazing thing that the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who is incarnate, who came to live among sinners, that he, as the Son of David and the great Messiah, would choose to reveal these mysteries unto us. It's a, a fascinating thing and that we have the canon of revelation closed and completed and completely reliable that we can look at. And so, especially in Matthew 13, we've seen uh, the the parable of the tares and the wheat. You might remember that back in verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field, and while he was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed tares. What was the point of that? The point of that is that there's a mixed nature of the kingdom of heaven. There is the godly and the ungodly that exist together until the end. We saw in verse 31, and these are very short, so I'm just going to read them. He presented another parable to them, said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in a field. And this, the smaller of all seeds, when it has come, become full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. And becomes a tree, so the birds of the air nest in its branches. That aspect, we see the external growth of the kingdom, something that is so small. Uh, In this case, Jesus and his 12 disciples that would expand to the worldwide spread of Christianity as we know it today. Verse 33, and he spoke another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And what is the, the point of that is the internal growth. So the mustard seed, the external growth that all can see, the leaven is the interior growth, which is the spiritual growth that we experience as the children of God. And then we saw a familiar passage, verse 44 to 46, uh, the treasure that was hidden in the field that a man happened to, to fall upon, and, and, uh, and then also the, the one of the, the pearl of great price, there's a couple of nuances there. The first, I believe Brother Steve brought this one out, but the first, uh, the treasure that's hidden in a field, a man man found and hid again, and over joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has that he might enjoy that. Now, he finds that accidentally. But the other one, uh, the, the one who finds the pearl of great value is a merchant that's searching for fine pearls. And then he finds the pearl par excellence, the one that... Uh, it cannot be compared to any other uh, pearl. And so you have the aspect of it that the kingdom of heaven is something that is infathomable 
uh, as far as the value of it. You can't put a price tag on it. And so we gladly renounce everything that we might lay hold of the kingdom of heaven and even Christ himself. And then last time, Massimo, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and it gathered fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they did what? They threw away, right? And so you have also here, like the tares, the first one, the mixed nature of the kingdom. But there does come a day and in both of these parables, I believe it's verse 30, where it speaks of that they're thrown into the fire, and also, likewise, even these fish, uh, 1349, and so it will be at the end of the age, and the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. So the mixed nature, and even in some churches, there's unbelievers and true believers <laughs> that exist side by side. It should not be with the well-ordered church. But that's kind of where we're at. And so now we jump really a little different themes and we come to Matthew 18. And we're going to talk about forgiveness. It's a vital, vital topic. And the title of the message is, Have You Forgiven All Those Around You? And I think that's one of the the thrusts of this. And um, Calvin had already read the scripture reading. I'm going to read parts as we go through it. But just by way of introduction... We live in a world of conflict. I mean, it's no secret. Turn on CNN, bombs, sirens, paramedics, there's conflict. There's internal conflict. There's outward manifestations of destruction. There's wars and battles and rumors of wars. Conflict is one of the most common and painful realities that we have in the Christian life and in a fallen world. And when we sinners, when we, when we live with or when we serve with in the context of the church, other sinners, sometimes conflict comes about because we're all sinful. We invariably encounter conflict in our homes, in our churches, in our workplace. Disputes frequently occur. These are, this, this is common because we live in a fallen world. There'll be no more conflict in heaven. <laughs> we will rest. That'll be part of that Sabbath rest that we will experience. But for now, God uses these things to grow us, to humble us, to sanctify us, and they're vitally important. Conflicts come in different sizes, different degrees, different manifestations. They can come in all different types of ways. But the Bible, through Christ Jesus and the gospel, offers what we need to resolve the conflicts when they happen. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been provided for us. The bottom line is conflict of conflict is sin. And the bottom line of Christians resolving this conflict is that a God of peace who has redeemed us has come to reconcile sinful men to himself. That's the whole point of 2 Corinthians 5, the end part. By the work of Christ, God himself has reconciled us to himself. And so let's look at verse 21 and 22. Peter asked this question, and I alluded to this in this morning's sermon. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Thinking himself to get a compliment. Up to seven times? Thinking he's really going the extra mile, right? How often should I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times times seven times. 
Peter likely expected, uh, thinking to be commended for his great heart and his large-heartedness that I would forgive somebody seven times if they came to me with the same offense. Jesus destroys his assumption with a phrase, taking these two perfect numbers, seven and ten, coming up with 70, and then adding another seven to it, communicates very simply that we are two brothers. Always be forgiving. Just as you have been forgiven by Christ, who are you to harbor bitternesses? And so Jesus' question is the occasion for the story that we're about to dig into, okay? So keep that in the back of your brain. It's this question on how often should I forgive? Jesus says, I've got a story for you. This will be one to write home about. This will be one that will stick with you and uh, uses, I think, hyperbole uh, as we go through. So let's look first of all, and I'm just going to reread the sections as we go through it. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had until repayment be done. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So let's consider this. First of all, this idea of a king wishing to settle accounts. So a king, and you think the Roman Empire, there's several different regions and governors placed around there. Pilate was a One of the governors, there's multiple governors that would rule various provinces that they were required to bring in revenue for um, Rome. And so the king comes wanting to settle accounts. Okay, all you governors, you're you're to pay me what you owe. And there's this huge amount here. One uh, one governor owed 10,000 talents. And I think the meaning here, because Christ is trying to get put the, the point forward about how important forgiveness is, that this is hyperbole. And I think when I explain exactly how much money this is, um, you might agree. Well, a talent was a weight. It was a weight, okay? Um, a very heavy weight. Some say 50, some say 70 pounds, but very heavy. So if it was gold, in this case, likely gold, you would put gold on one side of the scale and a talent that's weighed on the other, and that's how you would come up with a talent of gold. Well, this is 10,000 talents. Let me just communicate exactly how much gold that is. And I didn't verify these numbers 100%, but I seem to recall Solomon's temple having 8,000 talents of gold. Everything in the temple was covered with gold. That's a lot of gold. So, in other words, this man owed more gold than all of Solomon's temple uh, had in it. Solomon, at the very peak of his reign in 1 Kings, in one year, it says, it mentions a few times, all the gold that was contributed from other kings and given to him and all of that totaled 600 talents. In 200 AD, the total tax revenue of all of Palestine and Galilee in that particular region was 900 talents. A talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. One denarii was one day's labor. So a talent 
would be equate 15 years of labor. It's an enormous amount. And this is 10,000 times that? How he racked up such, you know, I mean, Jesus is painting a picture here for us, but that's just an amazing thing. This would be 6 million days of labor. 6 million days. Uh, Even if somehow the slave was able to come up with 10 talents per year, uh, it would take a 1,000 years to pay off. (laughs) And so when he says, have patience with me, I'll repay, (laughs) he knew he couldn't repay. But then we see the compassion of the king in verse 26. The man falls to the ground, the word prostrated is the word worship, falls on his knees, bows down, recognizes this is one with authority, begs him uh, there, and, uh, and um, I will pay you everything. Of course, that's impossible. The king could have sold the slave, as it states, and his wife and his children. Uh, there would be no way that he would ever repay the debt. But notice it says the king was moved with compassion. He took pity on this governor that squandered, however he incurred such a debt. It was certainly by his own folly and his own foolishness. And yet, he is forgiven, moved with compassion, it says. And then he forgave the debt. Uh, To forgive, the Greek word means to release from legal or moral obligation, to cancel, remit, or pardon. So not only does he say, okay, I'm not going to sell you into slavery, I'm going to allow your children to not go into slavery, but I want you to pay everything you can for the rest of your lousy life. He doesn't say that. He forgave them. Every bit of it, right then. He walked out as a free man with this load after falling down prostrate before the king. He's completely debt-free. What an amazing picture. Well, let's contrast that with our second point. Those who refuse to forgive others will be banished from heaven. And that's, I think, the point here. The forgiven slave did not learn from the example of the great king. The great king just provided a wonderful, glorious, beautiful example of compassion and forgiveness and remitting all that he owed. But look what the text says, verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. But his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. Notice the irony of the wording. Verse 26, when when the first governor falls to the ground, prostrates, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. And then how similar it is to verse 29. So if if anything, the the very words of which his fellow slave is, is coming to him should be echoing in his ears. These are the very words. I just fell to the ground, and pleaded with the king. The fellow slave owed four months' worth of labor. Four months. That is, to put in perspective, one six hundred thousandths, okay, um, what this other slave was forgiven. That's, that's amazing to me. One six hundred thousandths. And so what is he doing? He's choking him. He's pay back what you owe. And you just picture an angry person, right, that doesn't understand how they've been blessed, how they've been, um, how the goodness of God has come to them. And, and they're just angry, and they, it's like they want to choke people. What is this guy thinking? Well, 
The fellow slaves notice what's going on. Uh, Verse 30, but being he was unwilling and went out and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. Now, what is, you might say, well, how does he pay back when he's in prison? Well, this would be what's called debtor's prison. You didn't get square, three square meals and a gym and a workout room and cable TV and air conditioning and all that back then. You were confined to a place. You didn't eat if your family didn't bring you food. Uh, your family was to scramble around and somehow come up with the money to pay off your debt, and you would remain in there until it was paid off. Verse 31, but when the fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported their Lord to their Lord all that had happened. So these fellow slaves hear what's going on. Um, verse 32, the king summons and summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all of the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? Can you imagine? And and notice the pronouns. Notice the the, the pronouns here. Um, You, right? Second person singular, you wicked slave. I forgave you all of the debt because you pleaded with me, the king, it goes on, should you have not had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? Isn't it interesting when it says in the same way? Do you know the Bible actually tells us we are to forgive others just as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus? There's a few places. I'll just read Ephesians 4.32 and it's uh, kathos, it's the idea is just as the same measurement of type of thing. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the measure of how we're to forgive each other is the measure of how Christ has forgiven you. That's the measure. The fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, we know it. Some of us were taught it growing up. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? We're all familiar with that. By the way, being forgiven is one of the most blessed things in the world, that we can actually be reconciled to God and and have fellowship with him. The fellowship that we've been learning is broken when we walk in darkness, when we don't have fellowship with the saints, when that is when that fellowship is there and it's good, it is healthy, and it's there's nothing that surpasses it. And yet this forgiveness of sin costs God dearly in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. Now, the repeated words in Scripture, when you see that again and again, and how we're told several times to forgive others, forgive others, forgive others, what does that mean? Does it mean that Scripture is kind of like, you know, the old records, like skipping? No? (laughs) Like three people know what an album was, but uh, uh, what? An MP3? It doesn't do that. Uh, But uh, no, of course not. It's because it's so vitally important, and we can forget sometimes the plainest things around us. Well, let's move on. Verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger 
handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed. Now, this is very interesting here. The, the word for torturers occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. A couple different lexicon definitions. One who elicits the truth by use of the rack as an inquisitor or a torturer would. So this is pretty remarkable. Usually you have in these kinds of stories thrown out into the fire, right? And, cat, you know, outer darkness and that kind of thing. But here it's, they're handed over to the torturers. Um, another lexicon says it's, it's perhaps an instance of literary hyperbole. As such, it may be possible to translate the expression here. His master was very angry and handed him over to the prison guards to torture him until he should pay back the whole amount. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Well, it may mean being put in the crucible of pain. It may mean that when you harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, and you're not forgiving others, it's like a backpack of rocks. It's like every offense that you catalog in your brain, it's like another rock in the backpack, until finally when you become of old age, you're all hunched down like this, because you've got all of these things about how everybody has hurt you in one way or another, and you haven't forgiven them, you haven't moved past it, and every now and again, when you're really down and out, you'll take the backpack off and you'll pull out the rocks and you'll say, oh, I remember this one. This was Susie, 2010. It was a spring day. It was about 65 degrees. Oh, I remember those hurtful words. She said, I'll never forgive her. Oh, and then this one. This was Bill, my childhood friend, who threw a rock and it hit me in the eye. I mean, you know, this, it's, it sounds silly, right? But, but that's what happens. That's the worldly mindset handed over to the torturers until he pay back what he owe. Well, what does he owe? Very, I mean, he owes this insurmountable amount, right? But to forgive others as he has been forgiven. Ultimately, when we don't forgive, it's a picture. If we continue in that pattern, it's, it's obviously clear that we are not saved. Listen to the Puritan Thomas Watson. The loss of the soul would be fatal. Other losses may be made up again. If one loses his health, he may regain it again. If one loses his estate, you may make it up again. But if you lose your soul, the loss is irreparable. Now, perhaps one of the most striking parts of this is the next verse. And again, notice the pronouns. Now the story's done, I think. Verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Who's listening to this parable? The disciples. Jesus is not directing this to the hypocritical Pharisees, the, you know, the legalistic Pharisees. He's directing this to his children, his disciples. So shall my heavenly Father do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. How instructive, what a warning that is to us any of us that would refuse to forgive others. Jesus addresses those who are very close. It's the disciples that are there. Jesus redeemed a people who have received abundant grace and overflowing mercy. And we are to be a people who extend his mercy and his grace to everyone. 
and especially to fellow believers. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, familiar verses. And when you were dead in transgressions and uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see all that? He's canceled out the certificate of debt and those decrees against us. All the times we've broken God's law. He's taken it all out and nailed it to the cross. William Henderson summarizes this story here. Positively stated, the one and only main lesson of this parable is this. And hear it well. Prompted by gratitude... The forgiven sinner must always yearn to forgive whoever has trespassed against them and must do all in his power to bring about complete reconciliation. What folly it is to keep track of wrongs. Remember the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5? Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered That means we're not secretly cataloging all the wrongs and I'm going to keep track and all of that. No, it does not do that. Love looks past that. Love, for Christ's sake, forgets it. If one will truly come and repent and confess. Look, God does not keep a catalog of your sins. He's omniscient. Of course he knows every sin, every evil thought. But why are we told in Scripture that your sins are cast into the depths of the sea? That's a picture of that those sins will never be brought back up if you are truly in Christ. Because he satisfied the Father's wrath, as we learned this morning. Well, quick application. The church should be a place where grace reigns. And so many churches are squabbling and fighting about the color of the carpet, about the, all these different types of things, and, and harboring bitternesses. And they're not places where grace reigns. Just like heaven is a place where grace will reign perfectly, so too the church is to reflect that, just like our homes should. Think of a, a foreign or a, a U.S. embassy in foreign soil, just that analogy with me for a moment. An embassy is a place of what? A place of refuge for its country's citizens on foreign soil. It's a place where, where one can receive special aid. The church is heaven's embassy on earth for born-again believers. The church of Christ is the embassy for us that we can come for safety. We can come and find refuge. Every local church is an assembly in which men and women and children can flee to from the judgment that is coming at the end of the age. As an embassy of heaven The church is not only a safe haven, it is also the center from which the policies of God are announced unto the world, heralded unto the world. The church as an embassy of heaven is authorized by the King of Kings to deliver his special message of reconciliation and peace. His ordained ministers are the one that are set apart to herald this truth to a lost and dying world. So I ask you, 
Are you making use of the embassy that heaven has here on earth in the local church? Yes, Sunday worship is great. It is, is wonderful. But there's so many other opportunities to go in this wicked world to go for refuge into somebody's home for a community group, a theology group, a men's group, a women's group, all these different opportunities, even meeting with brothers throughout the week. That's a taste of the, of the glory and, and the, the, uh, the, the peace and the rest that's to come. You finally fellowship with somebody that has the same worldview as you. Well, I ask you, are you harboring resentment? Wrongs, maybe there's some that even as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, if, if maybe you're going to realize that, you know what, I've, there's something I need to get right first. Let the elements pass. Deal with that first. And maybe it's something that just between you and the Lord, confess it, forsake it. Remember, Christ pleads your case before the Father, as we learned today, is our great advocate. The Holy Spirit will give you power to change your thinking and your actions. Look to Christ. Forgiveness in God only comes from Christ who has taken away our sins and paid for them all on the cross. He's covered our sins and he's wiped them as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 53, 6, he took the iniquity of us all upon him. So may the Lord help us, especially those last two verses the torturers, I think, I think, has an indication there that of believers that, that refuse to forgive, but they're truly in Christ, maybe it's a season, that they're not going to have peace. They're going to be tormented. But also that those who will not forgive, um, are, it's an indication that you're not in the kingdom of heaven. And also the stern warning that Jesus gives to the disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this Kingdom of Heaven series of which we've really just dipped the toe into the water this past year. We do pray your blessing upon it, and even now as Pastor Steve would come and lead the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.